Welcome to The Randy Report. I'm Randy Slavacek, your host. I'm also the writer and editor of TheRandyReport.com, where you can find me every single day on the internet reporting on the daily news cycle in terms of politics, pop culture, and entertainment news of interest to the LGBTQ community. Today, I'm chatting with writer and performer Dennis Hensley. We'll get into a lot of the fab things that Dennis is involved with, but here's a quick rundown. Dennis's television credits include Logo's Gay for Play game show starring RuPaul, Fashion Police, The Big Gay Sketch Show, and Love Spring International with Jane Lynch. Dennis co-wrote the feature film Testosterone and appeared in the cult comedy Girls Will Be Girls. He was one of four hosts of the national gay radio show Twist and a regular guest host on SiriusXM OutQ's satellite radio. He's the author of the novels Screening Party and Misadventures in the 213, and his short films include Rubdown, Reunion, Screening Party, Evie Harris, Shining Star, and If We Took a Holiday, which are all available for screening on YouTube or Vimeo. Dennis is also one of the writers behind the podcast Imagined Life. Each 45-minute episode takes you through the life of a well-known person only you, the listener, doesn't find out who the person is until the end of the episode. Quartzy.com named it the best new podcast and the most life-affirming podcast of 2018. In a completely different vein, Dennis recently collaborated with Jeb Havens to create the new party game, You Don't Know My Life. It's based on offbeat interview questions Dennis developed over his years of profiling celebrities for publications like Movie Line, Cosmopolitan, Out, TV Guide, The Advocate, and In Style. The game has been described as if Cards Against Humanity and Your Diary got drunk together and had a baby. Dennis is also the host and creator of the popular podcast Dennis Anyone, where he interviews creative professionals about how and why they do what they do and how they keep it going. In 2017, Dennis launched a new project called LifeCast by Dennis Hensley. Clients hire Dennis to interview them or a loved one about their lives, often around a special occasion or a landmark birthday and anniversary. And then Dennis takes those interviews and compiles it into a LifeCast, a podcast that can be delivered in an MP3 or shared online. I've known Dennis for years. He's always the guy you want to sit next to at a party because he's not only smart, but quick with a clever line. We were chatting about our respective podcasts over the last Christmas holiday, and we're comparing notes about some technical aspects about doing the podcast thing. We both decided we wanted to interview each other, and so here we are. The ensuing chat turned into a kind of dueling interviewers as we both keep trying to ask each other questions about the other's projects and lives and everything we do. In any case, it was a lot of fun, and the time flew by. Here's my chat with the fab Mr. Dennis Hensley. Dennis Hensley, how are you? I'm good, Randy. How are you? We're doing a cross-pollination episode. Uh, <laughs> it's like when Charlie's Angels went on the love boat or something. I know. Can I be Farrah? You're, you can always be Farrah because then I can be – I was going to say I could be Chris Monroe. We could be sisters, but they never were really in episodes together, so that doesn't work. I'll be – Well, they did six. Yeah, they did. They did, did. the second year this third, I, I, it's my era. You're a diehard. You, I knew that, but I didn't want to like bring it up because I thought it was too obscure. But then you brought it up, so we're on the same page. Um, 
Yeah, so thank you for se- helping me set up my Skype recording situation. So you, uh, you sound so fantastic on. Thank you. You were doing the Lord's work. Uh, <laughs> so um, I want to talk to you because you do so many interesting things. You've got your Randy Report blog um, where you do you know stories on the day's news and pop culture mm-hmm. and interviews, mm-hmm. politics. Like how do you decide what – goes in your on your blog is it anything that captures your sort of fancy you know the interesting thing about the blog is when i started it in 2011 um i i i started because i would wake up in the mornings i, I discovered blogs like in the late 2000s and i discovered joe my com right and com, and so every morning i would like check them to see what's in the news and then one day my husband, Michael, said, oh, you should start a blog. And I thought, oh, great. So only two people read it and it will be really pathetic. But um, I did, and I – in January – late January of 2011, and I think in the week of January that I was – last week of January, I got like 300 hits. Like I don't know how these people found me. I don't know how they – and I was writing about myself at the time. I was blogging the way we used to really blog. Right. And then, as you know, blogging, especially for gay bloggers, for a lot of us, politics started happening, and we started like referring to the daily news cycle a lot. And so over time, without even thinking about it, I shifted from like personal essays about my life, and every time Michael got in trouble, the world would learn about it and what he did wrong and when he's going to apologize, and <laughs> it shifted into um, me covering the daily news cycle. I get up in the morning and I start checking like 20 different news sites and I check CNN, I'm checking the New York Times and the Washington Post. I still check my my gay bloggers. I check Joe My God, I check Toll Road, I check Game Star News, um Boy Culture with Matt Rettenmund who I adore, um Kenneth in the 212. And I look at what people are picking up on. And the interesting thing about the the gay blogosphere is we all have our own flavors. We all have our own things that kind of appeal to us. So I write a lot about indie, out artists, um, lesbians, gays, bisexuals, um, and tr- trans uh, recording artists because they need an outlet. And sometimes they're already famous. You know, I was covering Halsey before she got to be huge, and Lizzo I was covering before she got to be huge. Um, they owe you so everything. I, I feel like they owe you everything. <laughs> I want to talk to you. You have 300 on the nose. 300. Really? Dennis Anyone episodes. I'm looking at you on iTunes right now. You started in 2010 before anyone else did with how right. to make a Cinnabon sandwich. <clears throat> Fabulous subject, by the way. And it took you 53 minutes to talk about it. Well, which the, the original episodes were the comedy couch with me and Tony Tripoli. Yeah. Um, and then – at a certain point, um, we decided to stop doing that format, and then I just kept it going as Dennis Anyone because I love to interview people. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, Dennis Anyone is a cute title. That's really cute. Thank you very much. Some people don't get it, it, but I like mm-hmm. it. But I can't believe it's been 300. 300 wow. on the I didn't nose. know that. Yeah. All right. That's so awesome. Good for you. I and like you know, to do it. I don't make any money, but it's fun. You it know? is. You know – well, I started my podcast as really as a companion piece because what I was doing is I realized I was like interviewing people, and then I realized you know people might want to hear these people talk. I mean, it's 
you get to hear a Livy Newton John talk. You get to hear Marie Osmond talk. You get to hear Judith Light talk. You're hitting um, all my sweet spots with those ladies. Uh, and then once I started doing the interviews, I thought, you know, I could do a like a 15 minute, 20 minute news roundup. So you can catch up on the latest LGBTQ news in a quick 15-minute podcast. It's like the 60 minutes of gay news, only shorter. I just was reading your website, and you have, like, the transgender band stuff, and then you have that Gus Kenworthy and um, the Mm -hmm. actor guy are taking a break, Matt Wilkes. Yes, Matt. That was today, yeah. I need to know both of those things. Uh, And so you're my one-stop shop. I never know when I sit down what I'm going to be writing about because I do follow the daily news cycle. So, like, today... I wrote about um, Paul Ryan uh, gave an interview to a new book, uh, the former Speaker of the House, and he basically retired to escape Donald Trump because it just Donald Trump knew nothing about uh, politics, and he got tired of educating him. I wrote about uh, this really heartbreaking letter that a teen left home because he had homophobic parents, and he posted the letter he wrote his parents saying, I'm not going – I refuse to be another statistic, and he left home because they were forcing him to go through conversion therapy and making him watch videos to change who he is and things like that. Um, it was really heartbreaking, and I love sharing those things because people need to understand that the idea of homeless teens is not – um, just a concept. It's a reality happening every day, and I want people to understand that and what people really go through. And then I posted about um, Gus and Matt Wilkes breaking up because people want to know. And let's face it, I follow them on Instagram, and I like looking at them. And you know, I'll post about my favorite Insta hunks and stuff like that. Who's so it, the it guy? Mix- who's the Who's the celebrity that you cover just because you like them? Like that the, that they're like that. Maybe you show them a lot of love. Yeah. Well, you know, in the beginning of – that's a really good question. See, you're good at this, Dennis. I would cover um, – if I was doing what you did, I would recover Ricky Martin's every breath. Like, I do. Um, yeah. You know, and Ricky it, it Martin turned right on Rodeo Drive. Uh, <laughs> here's 17 pictures. Yeah. I, I do. I cover Ricky. You know, I have a whole, like – in my Instagram, I make sure I follow the people that you know that I think are important. Um, you know, it's interesting. In the beginning of the Randy Report blog, randyport.com, um, Ben Cohen, the former rugby player in the UK, was really standing up for uh, anti-bullying causes. Right, and he I remember that foundation, and he was super hot and really friendly looking. And um, I went through a thing on Instagram with Alex Abramov. Who's a Russian? Gosh, what is it? Well, he's a model, and he worked on a reality show in Russia. He lives in New York City now with his really handsome boyfriend, Brett Miles. They both have separate accounts. They're both beautiful, and I just thought Alex was really hot. So anytime Alex posted something, I'd be posting that. Then I got into Insta Hunk Roundups, where I just post all my favorites like once a week. I want yeah. somebody to do a, a movie called Someone is Killing All the Gay Insta-Hunks. <laughs> and it's like a murder mystery where the Insta-Hunks get killed one by one. And then you try to find out who did it. Yes. Yeah. And they're naked. Well, well, you need to write that because you've written movies too. Well, I've dabbled. <laughs> well, dabbled. Um, you've written like, like – you wrote Testosterone. I co-wrote the, the movie Testosterone. That. Yeah, well, that was the and biggest girls one. Girls Will Be Girls. I didn't write that, but I I appeared in that, but I I wrote a short film that came before that that had Evie Harris in it uh, that was super fun. Oh, Shining Star. Yeah, it's on YouTube. If you're a fan of Girls Will Be Girls and you haven't seen Evie Harris, Shining Star, go to YouTube because it's it's really funny. 
do so many things. Well, I want also, you. I know you through my friend Matt Zarley because you guys mm-hmm. were um, Broadway people together. Right. We did Cats back when it was a good credit. <laughs> I love that. Is such a great. Oh, that is such a great thing to say. But yeah, it's so it was, sad. I, and I don't mean it to bash the show, but we really we we did Cats. In 1986, we were we were we were the first national touring company that America really saw. Which cat were you when you were in Cats? I was the magical Mr. Mistopheles. Oh, kind of- I did that on a cruise ship once, but only for a little segment. And there was a lift, and oh, I wasn't very up? good at the lift. <laughs> oh yeah, they, and it was uh, Cats was its own thing. You know, it's a good thing. I was I was a dancer on Broadway for many years and an actor and all that. And um, it was interesting because my career really went in the right direction because I did the hardest dancing I would ever do in my life when I was 23 and doing cats. And then I did that for two years. And then my next couple of national touring companies were a course line, which was hard, but it wasn't as hard as cats. And then I did a national touring company of 42 second street and which was hard, but it wasn't as hard as a course line. Did you have to roll those coins? I did. We had to and, – and hurl it on the floor so that the girls could dance on them, and we just kind of stood behind them swaying and stuff. Yeah, we're in the money. We had coins on a cruise ship, and the oh coins – you're trying to roll the coins, and the ship is moving, ship. and oh then no. you're going to dance on the coin. The coins were a pain in the ass is my point. But <laughs> they were a pain in the ass. It was show they business. Were. Then I got into – somehow they found me. Chicago the Musical found me. And it's then so I went sexy, into, that show. Oh, it is. Oh, so Don't you feel sexy doing it? Like yes, with all those other hot cool. guys and the mesh and the capizio pants yes. and shit? Th- that was the cool thing is I'd never been sexy in my life, and yes. I got to pretend to be sexy. And so yes. that's another you thing. Pretending. You pretending. You just pretend. You, just, you weren't you pretending. Just, you were. And yet you just right. be sexy. Be and sexy. They, so when I went in the L.A. company, you know, they didn't have uh, – any extra costumes because everything was designed for the people. Right. So what they did was, I kid you not, the wardrobe supervisor for the national tour went to International Mail when it was Damn still right around. Damn right they did. Of course they and, did. And, you know, International Mail had all those kind of black, fake, yes. sexy mesh thing. And they found me a really cool mesh shirt, and they found me black stretch jeans. Damn right. And for like three months with that company and the when I moved to, to the Detroit company, I took it with me. And I wore that, and then we were in Detroit, and Walter Bobby, the director, came out to give notes, and I was on um, that night. And the next day in notes, Walter goes, Randy, what were you wearing last night? <laughs> As if it was my choice or something. I'm like, I know. Me to wear. Well, I had and a I gift said, card at International Mail. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> oh, so my I God. So I said, you know, what they gave me, he goes, yeah, don't wear that. Because apparently my black International Mail stretch jeans. Yeah had washed out so they were just really kind of dark gray and nobody noticed until i was standing next to everyone else in black on stage yeah apparently i looked really bougie so what big stars did you work with that came in and out of the show oh my god i did it with everyone um who was your favorite oh oh, well i can tell you my favorite absolutely my my favorite roxy was charlotte dembois okay absolutely and that doesn't mean i didn't like the others um, sure because people were really nice um you know um uh, there were so many great Roxies that I did it with. You know, I did it with Mary Lou Henner, who's fun. Yeah. Um, uh, but Charlotte was just – Charlotte just found things as an actress that I just loved. And she was quirky, and, and it was just really vulnerable and stuff, which I really loved. When it comes to Velmas, I think my favorite Velma 
that I did it with was Brenda Braxton, who was just all around fabulous. But Stephanie Pope was brilliant too. Yeah. Um, and of course, BB was fabulous. BB was brilliant. Um, Who surprised Bibi you? Was there ever any, any like stunt casting person that came in that that really surprised you? That like showed up and for real? Um, yeah, you were like, wow, who knew? Did they? Let me think on that. <laughs> um, no one it's okay if they didn't. Um, you know, you know, I wouldn't call it stunt casting, but you know who was really quite wonderful, and people may not have thought of him is um, Trapper John M.D. Oh, my God. He's oh, Gregory singer. Harrison. Gregory Harrison, who I adore. Oh, I my God. These. For I ladies only. I mean, talk uh, about yeah. the 70s. Uh, him in the shower and Trapper John M.D. And those opening credits. The rest oh, of the my you God. Too. Can you believe I remember? He, and in the first, in the pilot, like, the he's being confronted in the shower, and he's like, yeah, the rest of me is pretty cute, too. And he opens the shower door, and he's like, oh. oh. I did Follies on Broadway. The first revival that's how old i am it's been revi- revived since i did the revival in 2001 on broadway with gregory and he was brilliant and then like a year later we go out on the national tour and he's billy flynn and gregory was fantastic what's the worst thing that ever went wrong for you on a sh- in a show uh oh god you're so good with questions um i i know the answer to that really quickly so when i was swinging the show in 2003 2004 after the movie came out they sent Chicago back out. The two national touring companies had closed, and they sent me – they sent the co- uh, company back out. And they needed a swing at the last minute, and they went, oh, Randy. So that's when I, 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 I took the swinging job again, and I liked it by then. So I go on, and we're in San Francisco for a month, and in the number razzle-dazzle, we used to have this thing called the death lift. And oh, we're God. All in- in like a yeah, it's always the lift, isn't it, Dennis? Oh, I hate they, lifts. I hate lifts. Just let me go dance. So yeah. one guy would uh, everyone was in like a, a a horseshoe shape, and a guy would slide into center stage and lay on his back and put his feet up, and then that night I was on for a guy who's the top part of the lift. So I would step in, put my back to the guy who's on the ground. He would put his feet in the small of my back. And I would just lean backwards and arch, and he would lift me up, and I would be like, uh, like a horseshoe over his feet, like would just right. balance over his feet. And then it would hang there a second, and then he would, he would push with his lower back, and I would do a walkout to the other side. I would like put my hands down and walk out like a, you know, like a, a back walkover. walkover. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he and I had never done it. To, it was it was both swings. It was me and the other swing, and we had oh, never. Shit. Usually, when we'd gone on, it was the other person that's the regular person. So when when the regular person is there, you kind of like have someone who knows exactly what they're doing. So it kind of helps out. So uh, it was David and me. I won't give his full name, and we we did it once or twice before the show, and we're fine. But he was like, I was up there a while, and he has to give the impetus to start the walkout. And we're hanging out, and we're hanging out. I'm like, oh, we're late. Uh, we're late. Uh, we're late. So I thought he was wrong, and so I tried to kick out. I tried to kick over. Uh-oh, I'm scared. And my hands were not under me. Oh, shit. And instead of my hands being under me and, like, me walking out, my hands slipped out. I landed on my head on top of him. Oh. And then the whole number just keeps going, and the whole idea is that we're doing this trick, and then right after that, all of the cast like does this slow motion applause, like "Aren't you fabulous?" Right. Well, I'm there laying on my head. <laughs> the, whole, the whole cast like leans in there to look at me, 
and like singing razzle dazzle and doing the yeah. slow motion. They're like, are you okay? Right. Were you and hurt? Like 2000, I was not, except for my ego, which was right. completely bruised. I'm like, can I leave now? Yeah. Um, but that that was the, that was the worst thing okay. I think that ever happened to me on stage. Yeah. I can see it playing out in slow motion. Well, um, speaking of worst things, I want to ask you. So yes. all these interviews you've done, I want to ask you about this. So celebrity interviews are an interesting thing because you have to constantly, I find, feel your way because sometimes maybe their publicist didn't tell you not to ask a question or maybe they don't want to answer it that way or maybe you touch on something that they weren't expecting. And Have you ever had an awkward moment in a celebrity interview where someone like just – shut you down or like there was a moment where you kind of like tension crunchiness yeah you know with with people there's always not always but sometimes there's people that you interview and there's that thing that you have to ask and you don't want to ask it Mm -hmm. but you have to Mm -hmm. um something just happened and or yeah i I remember interviewing donna summer and Mm -hmm. i had to ask her about the aid stuff and the gay stuff Mm-hmm. And um, and she had an answer that was sort of canned, and but it would you know she'd been asked about it a bunch, but you could see her sort of shut down, mm-hmm. uh, the light in her eyes kind of go out, and mm-hmm. it, it ended up being like the least vi- vibrant part of the interview. But I had to do it, and it was mm-hmm. fine. It was fine. Mm-hmm. But there have been a few awkward moments, but not a ton. Um, yeah. I think I try to look for the opening, like the way if they if they answer about something and it makes a natural follow up to get that other thing in there. I, mm-hmm. I try to find the the way that's the least uh, obtrusive. Or of course, you wait till the end. You know, you wait mm-hmm. till you get everything that you need, and then you ask the hard question. Which, by um, the way, is a very good technique. <laughs> yes, wait, put it at the end. <laughs> uh, I remember once interview doing an interview with Jane Fonda for a cookbook. For Us Weekly magazine, and it was just about a cookbook, right? Mm-hmm. And but like that very morning, my editors wanted me to get a quote from her about something else related mm-hmm. to Ted Turner or politics. It was something that was like news of the day, and I remember asking it at the end, and she's like, "I'm not going to talk about that or whatever." Um, and I, you know, but I, I, I just doing my job. But it was, it was kind of like a record scratch moment for sure. You have something called observation deck questions. Yes. Observation deck. So tell me about that because this sounds like such a great idea and I, I'm going to I, I every now and then I'll read an interview online or something or in a magazine and I go, ooh, that's a good question. I should write that down in case that ever applies to someone I'm interviewing. Tell me about observation deck questions. Well over the years of interviewing people, I started to come up with these questions that I found got good anecdotes mm-hmm. for my articles. Like what did you get picked on for when you were a kid? Uh, how did you learn the facts of life? Um, just little things like that. And so I started a list of them. And I would Xerox, take a Xerox copy of it to every interview and just highlight a few to pepper in. And I found that it it usually got good anecdotes that, that weren't sort of overexposed. And when I started my podcast, I put the questions onto cards. And I would have the guest pick out a few of the cards before we started because they knew, you know, oh, I have a story about that I can ask. And so I would just bring them up at the end. I should have had you do observation deck questions, <laughs> but I'm not in person to give you the cards. But, I yeah, that's, that's, how awesome. it, that's how it started. And then those questions turned into this game that I co-created with Jeb Havens uh, called You Don't Know My Life. So Is that how that happened? Because, yeah, I wanted to bring It came out of those about, questions. Yeah. yeah so, so you have this game yes. that you developed. 
and it's it's like interview questions, but like people fill out cards before you get. Let me see if I get this right because I, I know the game. I have it. That's right. Um, you have you a fill copy. Out, you fill out cards, and then people choose the cards not knowing who the the story belongs to, right? Yeah, that's kind of it. Like what happens? Say there's like seven of you around a table, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one player draws a couple of cards and picks a question. One of these questions. Say mm-hmm. the question is, describe a memorable encounter you had with an animal. And then everyone has a little pad that's about the size of a post-it note. They write down a few sentences telling a little story, and then they get gathered up and mixed up and passed out and presented, and then people take turns trying to figure out whose story is whose. And we have mm-hmm. a fun step that's in the middle that keeps the handwriting from being a giveaway, because a lot of times you know ah. your friend's handwriting. Yeah. Right. So, right. so you yeah, learn things about people that you never knew, and you remember things about your own life that you haven't thought about in, in 20 years. It's really fun. It's one of my favorite things that I've ever been a part of. And, um, yeah, it's up on Amazon now. We've got 40 reviews, and they're all five stars so far. So, awesome. yeah. And only we 33 have- of those are our friends. So there are seven people <laughs> that are strangers. No, um, yeah, it's been great. I love it. But you also have this thing that I think is really wonderful. Uh, Life cast, and yeah. this turns into another thing about interviewing people. But there's a special reason for it, so that people, whether it's whether it's their life in general, or if perhaps if they have the impending birth of a child, or maybe children never ask their parent their parents yeah. about how they met or something. So talk about life cast because this is something someone can give someone as a gift, or yeah. like if you go on a trip around the world, tell me, let's talk about that. Cause I think this is so cool. Cause who doesn't want to be asked questions? about Right. Well, I, you know, I love interviewing people and magazines were my bread and butter for a long time, but magazines yeah. have sort of died out. Right. So I wanted a way to use my interviewing skills, but also, you know, contribute something and make a little money. So I started this business called Livecast, and basically people hire me to interview them about their lives. Um, So a lot of times, like somebody maybe our age would hire me to interview their parents who are getting up there and they want to get their story Mm -hmm. down in a way that is, you know, entertaining and not too high stress. And so Mm -hmm. it sort of functions like a podcast. Um, but it's somebody talking about their life. I interview somebody for two to three hours and then edit it together and use music and make this really great kind of audio heirloom that they're able to share with their loved ones um, as easy as you would listen to your favorite podcast. So it's always accessible from your phone. Um, And it's been really fun and fulfilling. I've gotten to talk to some some interesting people. And I think people – what I found is a lot of times, especially if it's somebody's parents, they're a little wary of like, what is this? But once you get them talking, I think people want to be – they like to talk about what they've experienced, and they like that somebody seems interested. And right. I don't know. I think they found the experience meaningful, and it's not too high stress. Like nobody has to be on camera. Um, <laughs> I bring my observation deck questions, so there's always a lot of humor to it. But it's a mm-hmm. way of um, – preserving the the milestone moments of somebody's life uh using... so like retirements or an yeah. anniversary maybe or yeah and i've started covering i've i've done i've gone to weddings and asked all the guests fun questions and then edited them together oh, um what a good idea yeah so you can learn more about it at getalifecast.com but um mm-hmm. yeah it's 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 been cool you know and for a long time i've had those questions in my back pocket for a long time. And I didn't realize they were an asset really. I Mm -hmm. didn't realize what I had until Mm -hmm. I started exploring it with the observation deck and with the game and stuff. Um, So yeah, I'm just trying to 
trying to to help people tell their stories and capture their stories for for future generations and and uh, not letting them slip away, you know. Yeah. What a great idea. No one does anything like that. You know, people do their little video montages or something. And, you know, my, my husband's mother recently passed away and they, they had to create like a they used still photos and created a montage that would play at the wake and things. But that's like to have this this chat, this podcast of of your maybe your parents talking about how they met. Yeah. Because I don't know how my parents met. I, I have no idea whatsoever. And you know, when you're when you're 10, 20, 30, you're not thinking about how your parents met. But no. you know, when maybe when a parent passes away or when they're gone, you might wonder, you know, I don't know that. And wouldn't it be cool to hear their voices yes. say those things in their own language? Yeah, in their own words. Like the last client that I did his it was his father who was who had just turned 80 and he was you know mm-hmm. had a big family lots of kids and grandkids everyone loved him he's still with us obviously but um he used to sing to them when they were kids and so mm-hmm. i got him to sing some of those songs on the tape and i think it's just it's really special for the for the family to have that and i think sometimes um a stranger can ask questions that that of that they might not be comfortable talking about in front of their kids. Um, and I also like my parents, my mother passed away when I was in my thirties and my dad as well. And I never really talked to them right. the way I talk to people that I interview. Like I know more about, you know, Suzanne Summers than I know about <laughs> like how my dad moved to Arizona or whatever it was, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, that's, that's something that motivates me. Like this idea that like, I didn't know their story. I never saw them as sort of separate from just being my parents. Like Is, what were their dreams? Uh, what was it like when they met? Um, that kind of thing. Oh my gosh. I think that's terrific. You yeah. do so many things. You know, Billy Porter would call you uh, a do it yourself bitch. I know. Uh, and I, <laughs> I get he, it. Because, he believes in that. Well, you have to, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of this, I've done a lot of different things because some things um, pay you and some don't. So you have to kind of, mm-hmm. You kind of kind of have to jump around. So um, I, I like doing different things, though. So, but yeah, if one track had just kind of gone, I might have stuck with that. But, but right, that's well, all right. I'm the same way, and I think that's why I'm so drawn to to your 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 resume and your bio and your so well and you're super clever. I mean, just listening, to you, you're always so super clever. You're the oh, best person you. to be next to at a party, uh-huh. and um, <laughs> you know. I, I, I love even your bio. The last line of your bio reads, he is currently seeking representation and most likely parking. That's true. Which, Both of those are in, true. <laughs> which in L.A. is such a perfect line. When you first uh, moved to New York, I think you were acting and singing and dancing and you're on a cruise line. And you, you got a job as as um, a cruise dre- as a cruise director, right? Assistant cruise director, job. yeah. Yes. You did your homework so, for I mean, Princess Cruises, yeah. But we were it was an audition job, so we were doing the shows and then we would do um like cruise staff duties, you know, during the day and stuff. So it was like, a lot of work, but it was really fun. You know, a window opens or a door opens and you take advantage of that and then you do it. And I'm certain being because I've been on cruises and I know what cruise directors do and you know you have to deal with people. It's it's a personality job and and then you take those skills and it opens the next door of the window and you do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing you know, suddenly you're interviewing um, Donna Summer and asking there her about you go. D- asking thing. her about her gay stuff. <laughs> um, 
and making her uncomfortable. No, you know, I think the cruise ships were very helpful because we used to have to do what was called swanning, which was going Mm -hmm. around and just socializing. So -hmm. you got good at talking to strangers. You got good at asking questions. Um, I think it helped me when I went uh, into journalism to, you know, know how to talk to people Um, and and try to think, okay, what what can I ask them about? What can I – you know, I got a swan out here for 45 minutes <laughs> before I can, you know, go to dinner or whatever. So I think it was helpful in that way. Um, I think it would be. I think yeah. Did you be. ever do cruise ships? I never did. You know, I, think yeah. I, was, I was offered a production of A Chorus Line once as Bobby in the late 90s, and I said no. I forget why, and like a week later I got another job offer, and so it just never happened again. never happened. I, I will say, though, I've been on – I never thought I would do the gay cruise thing, but I have to tell you, a few years ago we went on our first gay cruise with Atlantis Cruises. Oh, they're Cruises. so fun. They're the best. I never yeah. thought I would like it. Yes, I love it. Now, everyone thinks, oh, it's a lot of drugs and stuff, and you know, I don't do any of that. And you know, We'll go to the dances at night for about an hour and look at everybody's costumes because for people who may not know about gay cruises – Every party every night is like themed and like there's a disco night or there's a white party night. or And so people bring a whole suitcase of costumes just to look super cool or whatever, blah, blah, blah. We'll go for an hour and then we'll go to sleep and we'll get up the next morning and sit by the pool. But it's so much fun. Yeah, I, there's I everything the you could cruises. want there. Whatever you're into. It, yeah, you know. I find the piano bar and um, – you know, I will tell you this. We were on the we, – we were on a gay cruise last year and – Michael and I were walked into the piano bar. We actually, Olivia Newton John, who's a client of Michael's, was Ugh, booked on the I'm Atlantis so Cruise love out of. Her. Oh, she's so awesome. We yeah. love her so much. Michael's been with her 20 years as her publicist. And we we did the cruise. She got on in San Juan. She did a concert that night and then got off the next day, but we stayed. And so after Olivia left, Michael and I found the the piano bar where they sang Broadway stuff, and I felt at home. And we walked in, and I kid you not, someone came running up. I thought Michael punked me. Someone came running up and moved Michael out of the way, and this guy said, oh, my God, you're the Randy Report. Oh, how fun. <laughs> and, Dennis, I swear to God, I thought someone was punking me because, like, nobody right. knows who I am. really. I, and the, it, was, it was a reader who recognized me from my blog, which absolutely blew me away. You never know who you're going to run into or something. And we laughed and I hugged him and I took a picture and I posted it and it was really cool. But I love the gay cruises, but it's, it's really a cool thing. If you haven't done it, it, it is cool because like for seven days and I never have the right language for this. So forgive me about the words I'm going to use because I don't like them. But for seven days, we are, we, the gay community are the norm. We are, it's just normal that we're all who we are, and you see people just freely holding hands, walking with their husband or their boyfriend or their girlfriend, and it's just really an amazing energy and stuff, and yeah. you hear that from a lot of people. And, and once the you crew do one, loves it. The crew yes, loves we, when the gay people come on because they tip good and they have fun. Oh, well, I'm looking at your bio. You worked with Carol Channing. Oh, my God. For two and a half years, yes. I, can favorite you memory. Was... Favorite memory of Carol Channing. Oh, God. I, I, well, the favorite has to be – in 2010, I, I did the revival with her of Hello, Dolly. It was my first Broadway show uh, in 2005, and uh, we did a pre-Broadway tour, tour for a year. We went to Broadway. We were there for several months, and then I staged the national tour after that, and so I was So you charge. weren't on stage. You were actually choreographing no, and staging. Oh, you no, were no, on no, stage. No, no, no. I was on stage, yes. Okay. I, 
the pre-Broadway and Broadway run, I was just in the ensemble and I covered Barnaby. And then six months after we closed, they were sending the tour back out. And Leroy Reams was our director, and he asked me to stage the choreography, and then I would supervise, and I'd be dance captain. But Carol still wanted me on stage because Carol liked familiar faces, so I had to be on stage still. So I'll go ahead and tell this story. My favorite story, Carol Channing's story, is we were on the, the post-Broadway tour, and we had traveled to Champaign, Illinois. And this was like a split week where we did like three days in Champaign, Illinois. We had to take two planes and a bus to get to what was like a soccer arena. And they built like a stage up on platforms. And we did the whole Broadway show, but it was like in the center of a soccer arena where the, they you know, brought the audience and we faced one way. And anyway, um, it was a long day and we do a, a, the sound check and the lights are up and we, we always ran the Hello Dolly number and sound check. And I was one of the four boys who jumped over the pit. We had a passerelle, which is a path that went out around the orchestra pit. And we used it a lot in the show. And at one point in the Hello Dolly number, she would be out on the passerelle, and I would back up and jump over the hole in the between the stage and the passerelle. Oh and my basically gosh. the orchestra was down there, like 20 feet down. But it was it was eight feet. I could jump eight feet. And you get used to it. So I did it for two and a half years. So well, for the first time, I don't know why, Carol with the lights up noticed that the orchestra was 20 feet down. And that concerned her. So we finish. It's now 7.30. It's half hour. Um, we're going to start at 8. And I, we go to our dressing rooms. Our dressing rooms are like locker rooms, like group locker rooms because it's a soccer arena. Right. And like the showers were open showers and blah, blah, blah. So I thought I have to take a shower. So I go in. And I'm taking a shower. Uh, and I'm just standing under the hot water. It's just me. And the next thing I hear is Randy. <laughs> And I turn, and there is Carol Channing with me in the shower, and all I'm wearing is soap. And I'm dripping wet, and Carol says, well, uh, uh, Randy, uh, uh, you, uh, you know, uh, uh, the pit is so uh, 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 far down, and that's dangerous, don't you think? Shouldn't there be a net? And I'm just standing in the water and I let her finish and and I I just said absolutely Carol um absolutely I will definitely talk to the tech director about that and but right now um I'm wet and she paused and, and just the greatest comedian ever. She paused and she looks me up and down and she goes, "Oh, oh, yes, of course. Well, uh, you know we're all just show folk." And That's turns right. and walks out. We're all just show folks. Show folks show it all. That's called. Oh yeah, yeah, she doesn't care. Um, and she would, you know, I would go check on her other nights, and the boys just thought they were so hysterical directing her into the shower with me. And you know, I would, I would interview her. I, I would go check on her every night at half hour, just to make sure she's fine. If anything needed a dressing or something, and I'd knock on the door, and she'd say, "Come in." And you'd walk in, and she'd be sitting at her dressing table doing her makeup, and she'd be wearing a button-up shirt that was unbuttoned with nothing on underneath. And I would be like, okay, good for you. <laughs> 75. So no pants, like, but what would like you have on the bottom? With nothing else. Okay. But, but like transparent tights, right. like just skin. Yeah. In. yeah. And you're like, you just worked really hard at staring her in the eye. Right. And, um, but 
my, I do have to say, in 2010, they called us back at the Gypsy of the Year event, which raised money for Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS, and they wanted to honor her with the opening number, and they called the Dolly Boys back, and I, we, we did a version of the Dolly number with her for the opening number, and it's on YouTube if you look at for Gypsy of the Year, okay, Carol Channing. I'm the blonde boy just living my best life because I was, I was on a Broadway stage again with Carol Channing 12 years later. Oh my and gosh. the audience just loved her so much that I just hyperventilated being with her. And they put me next to her because they, again, a, f- a familiar face, and she would gravitate to the faces she knew. And just being on with her on stage, if you watch the video, you'll just know that. I'm bringing I, it up right now. I'm going to watch. Oh. I just was. 2010. I was out. That was it. And, okay. and, you know, it was just such an incredible moment. And, and they. I ended up partnering with her a bit because she was 91 at that time, I think. And uh, I didn't want her to fall. And I loved her so much because she's so important to me. And so I ended up partnering with her to make sure that she was fine. She was fine. I don't want to act like she was frail. But it was new steps and stuff. And so just to help her out. And a picture of us was on the New York Times the next day. And all my friends called me, and they're like, do you know, have you seen the New York Times? And there I was on the cover of the New York Times Arts and Leisure section in color with Carol Channing. And it was just the coolest thing that got to happen. How many did you go buy? Did you go buy the whole stack? Uh, I, I have three. No, I have three. three. I That's a three. perfectly acceptable number. You yeah. know, and then you stack them, and you put them in a closet and hope they don't fade. And it was, it was cool. It was, you know, meeting Carol Channing, of all people, and working with her. And she was, she was awesome. She was awesome. She was a great, great star. She was brilliant. You know, a lot of people thought she was kind of like just this one thing, and she was just a brilliant person. I remember being at to dinner with her one time. She, was, she would talk politics, and suddenly she's just smart as a whip, and she's like names and policies. and like, oh, I get this. Oh, see, busted. Oh, you're really all this, but you want everyone to think you're kind of this dumb blonde thing. Right. She was really just a great talent, a great, great talent. Um, you know, they really messed up at the Academy Awards this year because they did not include her in the in memoriam. I know. And I thought people that was don't baloney. think of she was nominated for an Academy Award for featured supporting actress in Thoroughly Modern Millie. Right. She. And you know she practically never made another movie. Her, her she was nominated for an Academy Award and never made another movie. But how do you become a, a, an Academy Award nominee and you're this legend and the Oscars forgets you? I yeah, just, I think that's crazy. Boo. Yeah. Boo. I can't. I can't think and, about it. And we just we loved her and she was so kind to us. She was she was very nice. And you know I do make a point of telling people she was very nice to us and she she would she would rent a bus if we were in a city for two weeks and we had a monday night off she'd rent a bus take us to a movie theater buy out a seating of a movie get behind the concession stand serve all of us wow and once everybody had popcorn and candy and everything she paid for everything we'd sit down and watch a movie together she'd pay for all of it she'd pay for our thanksgiving dinner she'd have a thanksgiving dinner for the company christmas dinner I mean, she was very generous to us. That's amazing. What? How are you feeling about the Cats movie? Because I heard Taylor oh. Swift talking about it the other day on Ellen and how they had to go to cat camp where you run <laughs> around and be a cat and stuff. Yes, we had to do that. Yeah, I know. I've in- heard about that for years, but I yeah. just – I know, don't know. And, you know, um, Dame Judith is, is going to be – singing Memory? Uh, no, Dame Judith is going to be um, uh, Deuteronomy. Oh, it's usually like grandfather cat, but it's gonna be the grandmother cat, I guess. Yeah. 
And, uh, you know, I just don't know. Uh, uh, Jennifer Hudson is going to be Grizabella, so she's going to knock out memory. Okay. Taylor Swift's going to be Bomb Ballerina, the sexy cat. Okay. I don't, I don't, I think Ian McKellen is going to be Gus, the theater cat. He'll be wonderful. You know, that's good. But I don't know. I don't know about cats anymore. It's it, what like, when happened I, to it. It was the coolest thing in the world for mm-hmm. a long time. And, and then, then it, it was not. <laughs> then it became like a joke. What yes, happened? It, I don't know. I've never understood. It is one of those things. People used to say to me all the time the first day of rehearsals back in 1986 is like August 1st, 1986 or something. And they sat us down in a big circle, and they told us the story of cats. Believe it or not, there's a story of cats. And, you know, there's more than just, you know, here are the cats. Someone gets to be reborn, and now we're going to all perform for you, and one of us gets it, you know. Yeah. But there is a story. There's more to it. And every cat is specific, specific, specific. Like Matt Zarley was Pounceful, who's a teenage cat, and he's like curious about everything, but he's very innocent. There's another teenage cat, Tumble Brutus, who is kind of like a little <laughs> bit of a – But um, even the names make me laugh. Like, yes, I, Skimbleshanks the Railway I Cat. Can't. <laughs> he's like the cat on the trains, and, I just... but he's very efficient. And the magical Mr. Mistopheles was mysterious, but he liked himself. I decided Mistopheles liked himself. Like, I didn't want to be reborn because I'm like, I'm already fabulous. Why would I want to be reborn? Look that was your me. subtext? That was yeah, what was your – okay. like, Yeah, I don't need to be reborn. I'm good. Okay. Um, you know, the Rum Tum Tugger was the rock and roll cat. Sure. Um, Bombay Arena was a sexy cat. Oh, uh, Demeter, who sings the first part of McCavity, who's the villain, McCavity – Demeter, what the audience doesn't know is Demeter had been kidnapped and taken to McCavity's lair where he raped her over and over, and she has escaped. So throughout the show, there would be these crash sounds, and we all think it's McCavity. The the cat screaming, McCavity, is Demeter because she thinks he's coming back to kidnap her again and rape her some more. Wow. Now, you got that. Oh, yes. Now, Bombayarina – the sexy cat, she sings the second half of McCavity because she had a similar experience with McCavity, except she liked it. Okay. <laughs> she, she's like, he's a stud. I like to come get me again. Um, uh. So there was all this, you know, Tumble Brutus is like a teenager and he, he thinks he's a big cat, but like he scratches Grizabella to show that he's tough. And then everyone scorns him because they're like, don't act like that. Don't, you're being yeah. a child. And so he's like scorned for doing that. So every, uh, Victoria, the white cat, is very pure. Obviously, she's white, so there's this purity. Um, Syllabub is a, is a young cat who's very inquisitive, and she doesn't know who Grizabella is. So she's the one who sings the little bit of memory during memory, the little soprano part. And um, she's curious about who this person is and why nobody doesn't like her. And so everybody had a very specific thing that, that as an audience member, you don't know. But the interesting thing, and this is an acting thing that I learned. And I use this in in every show after that is what's important as an actor sometimes is that you are always playing something. The audience may not know what you're playing. Right. But they know when you're not playing anything. If you're disengaged, like if you're you're checked out and you're really not paying attention to where we are and you're not in, in the moment and everything, I think an audience can always sense that. If you are in the moment, even if you're playing something, the audience doesn't know what you're playing. They know that you're engaged. They know that you're with them. And they they taught us that because in Cats, we didn't have spoken dialogue. And so the focus, like when Deuteronomy, the grandfather cat, made his entrance, how we responded to him with reverence told the audience who he was, Mm -hmm. which 
sounds obvious, but if you don't think of it that that way, if they just say, "Oh, when he comes up, pet on him and and you know bow down to him," well, that's kind of heavy-handed. But how we responded to him in our own different ways as Mistopheles or Pounceful or Tumble Brutus or Mungo Jerry or whatever told the audience stuff. And so I've used that in shows when I direct and choreograph all the time is you have to be playing something, even if the audience doesn't know what it is, because, you know, I'll tell people, play this, play that. You know, in Hello, Dolly, when Dolly comes back to the Harmonia Gardens in Act Two and we do the Hello, Dolly number, I've set like 10 big companies of, of Hello, Dolly now. And I tell the – I always set the number first without our Dolly, the star. And I tell the guys, you have to make up a backstory, whether – we all have to love her. We have to love her, and the audience will get that we love her, but we can't just smile at her and love her. So whether your backstory is she would come into the Harmonia Gardens, and on busy nights she'd come into the kitchen and help you cook because it was just so hot, and there was no air conditioning in the kitchen. It was really awful, but she would help you cook, and then she would start a food fight in the kitchen. We'd have fun because we never had fun working at the Harmonia Gardens or – Maybe she introduced your sister to her husband, and up until that point, your sister was living with you and your wife, and you wanted your sister to move out. So thank God she introduced your sister to someone who would marry and get you out of the, get her out of the house. So we all love Dolly for these different reasons. So the, when Dolly comes down those stairs in that red dress, we all have to approach her for a different reason, but it's all love, and it's and you have to play that very very intentionally. And I tell people that all the time. Then I put Dolly in, and the whether it is you know Betty Buckley, who's currently brilliant in the national tour right now. Um, I did it with Leslie Uggams. I did it with Michelle Lee. I did it with um, just so many wonderful performers. And uh, Lynn Wintersteller, who's awesome. But by the time you put them in, when they come down those stairs and they don't even sing yet, they're just going down the line looking the boys in their in the eye. Those boys are playing a scene with them and the actresses come in and go, Oh my God, they, they're all so nice. And they're all smiling. They're so warm. I'm like, because they're acting and they have a story. Now you're going to add yours and we're all going to have it together. And so, and it makes them feel really good. Probably. Right. They probably it, feel it, like they're the shit. Yeah. And you know, and, and every night, you know, Carol was, Carol made contact with all of us, with all of us. And so it was just, it, it's an interesting thing. What you learn, not in an, in an acting class, but on stage with people like, Blythe Danner and Follies and Judith Ivey and Gregory Harrison and Tree Williams and Follies. And do you miss you... performing? Do you miss I it? do. I do. Yeah, I do. I would do I, if, if there was, but I couldn't dance today. I mean, because the thing about dancing is so many of my jobs were dance based. And if you aren't dancing every day, it just gets so hard. When I choreograph now, a few years ago, I choreographed a production of West Side Story in San Diego. And I had the brilliant idea. I hadn't danced in six months, and I had the brilliant idea. I was setting the original Jerome Robbins choreography, which I learned from Jerome Robbins. And I had the brilliant, I'm being sarcastic, idea of <laughs> setting cool the first night. So I set cool, and you know, cool is so intense, and it's really hard. Right. It's hard. Dennis, the next day, I couldn't get out of bed. I was so so. I was just paralyzed with inflammation. Right. I like it was the dumbest idea. Like we should have done G Officer Krupke or something. I mean, it was just it was so. I was like, Randy, had you lost your mind? I would love to get on stage again if it was the right thing. But I don't. I also like writing now, and I'm a journalist, and I have my podcast, and I like all those things. Do you miss performing? Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. It's yeah. it's fun. You know. I miss but dancing. I, I still go to dance class. Do you see? I I, do. I love that. Yeah. You know, I remember living in L.A. in the early 2000s, and Billy uh, Porter, 
was there, and you know, now, of course, now he's this big star with with Pose and his Tony Award. On TV, TV reporter. <laughs> but Billy called me one day and goes, "Oh, I'm going to go take Michael Owen's class, dance class." And Michael had taught in New York for many years, and we all knew his warm up. So I went and took dance class with with Billy. You know, Billy kept taking dance class. You know, Billy never stopped, and people think of him for his singing and his acting, but boy, can dance his ass off. And yeah. uh, you know, he kept going to class. You keep going to class. And I really do like dancing. It's when it's a gift and, and I say it's a gift. I don't mean it like, oh, aren't I wonderful? I say it's a gift that I can't take credit for it. It's something that God gave me. And I didn't know that I could dance until the first day I got up when I was really young and I was in my first high school musical. And everyone went, oh, my, you, you really dance well. I'm like, I'd never taken a class. Really? But I moved well. Is that natural to it, you? That's amazing. It was a thing. And then everyone said, oh, you should take a dance class. And when you're a boy who's 13, 14, and you start taking dance classes, you know, everybody encourages you because there are no boys. And then just it, it snowballed. It was a thing. And I always thought I was going to be an actor and singer because I started singing when I was like six years old. And I wanted to be Donny Osmond because when I was, you know, six years old, Donny Osmond, the, the Osmond brothers were super famous and everyone loved Donny. And I, years later, I realized, and this is like really deep. Um, I realized like when I was 35, I wanted to be Donny Osmond because I thought if I was Donny Osmond, people would love me. Oh my gosh. I, and I don't mean that like I wasn't loved, but I thought everyone loves Donny Osmond. And, and somehow viscerally on a gut level, I thought, you know, well, if I was him, they everyone would love me. I would, yeah, all my problems and, would be solved. And I did not figure that out until I was like 35, 38. And one day it came to me, I went, oh. But I always like being – I always like singing. I always like acting. Um, and when the dance thing happens, suddenly I'm a boy, and I dance, and suddenly you're a dancer. Next thing you know, you go to New York City, and you're cast in a brand-new national tour of Cats back when it was a good credit. I have one more question for you to wrap up before we wrap up. Going back to your journalism and the writing that you do every day, why do you love it? You know why? A, a few years ago – I actually do have a direct answer to that. I was at a party, and someone – I was talking about politics which has been very important to me. When I, when I was little, let me back up a bit. When I was little, I was afraid of everything. I was afraid of everything. And then when I was, this goes back to Cats again. When I was in Cats and, and I- It remember, all go, everything yeah, goes back to Cats. It all goes back to Cats. It's, it's, it's much deeper than we ever dreamed. Right. I remember there was a, an, an actress in the show, a dancer who played Demeter, uh, Deb. And she was having a fight with her boyfriend in Dallas and he was a musician in the show. And she turned to him one day, and I just happened to be in the hallway, and she goes, you know, Hugh, I'm not afraid of anything. Like, she was this little, cute little thing, but she was like, she's going to punch him if she needed to. But she turned, she said that. I remember that that resonated with me. I'm not afraid of anything. And I realized that I'd been afraid of so many things my whole life because I was just, I was afraid of not being liked, or I was afraid of just everything. And the reason I mentioned that, though, is somewhere when I heard that, I decided, I'm just going to decide I'm not going to be afraid. I'm just right. I'm I'm just not going to be afraid anymore. And like magic, I kind of wasn't. I just pretended I'm not afraid of anything. And so that snowballed into I started getting involved in politics and reading a lot about it and becoming passionate about it and raising my voice. And until that time, I would have been afraid to do that. Mm -hmm. And one day I was at a party and I was talking about politics and someone said, "How do you know all this?" And I don't think I'm I was all that smart. I just happened to follow politics. And I thought, "How do you not?" Right. And that was part of what – when I started the blog, I started sharing things because I thought 
part you, – you asked me earlier, like, what do I choose to write about? I write about things that I think people should know. Sometimes it's something uplifting, and it's just a human nature story that is uplifting because we also need those things in life. We can, we can report on all the bad stuff that happens. There's a lot of that in life right now. But I want people to know that there are good things happening in life. I also want people to be educated, and, and now that we have this phrase, fake news – I want people to really know the truth about what's going on in politics. So I, I only – when I write about news, it's not opinion. I'm just reporting the facts, and I, what I do is I make it brief because nobody wants to read you, you know, like a 2,000-word article you know, like in the New York Times. They do a wonderful job, but my perspective, and I find a lot of people is they want to know what a story is in like two, three, four paragraphs, and that's it. So right. What's important to me is to share with people what I think they should know about what's going on in, in life today in news, whether it's politics or pop culture entertainment. And maybe it's because it is a really wonderful performance on TV going on right now, and I think you should see this because it's just fabulous. Or there's something in politics. That's what really drove me to do the writing that I do, and that's what became important to me is I want people to know things. I don't want people to be at a party and be quiet in a conversation because they don't know anything about it. So they're going to choose to just be quiet because right. they don't know. I want people to know. I don't want another person to say, how do you know that? Because my answer might be, how do you not? So um, thank you for doing this, and thank you for helping me learn how to use my equipment. And uh, Is that add, a euphemism? <laughs> add, that's a euphemism. It is. <laughs> um, so, Absolutely. Yeah. You have a great day. <laughs> you too. Okay, bye, Randy. I know I rarely have podcast episodes this long, but I had so much fun chatting with Dennis, I didn't even check the clock until we'd ended the chat. Mucho thanks to Dennis. Make sure you visit his website, www.dennishensley.com. I'll also have his other links and social media in the show notes. And that brings me to the end of this episode of The Randy Report. If you enjoy catching up on LGBTQ news and a quick podcast, I'd appreciate it if you wouldn't mind sharing The Randy Report with your friends. I like to think of this podcast as the 60 minutes of gay news, only shorter. Sometimes. And remember, you can find me every single day on the internet at therandyreport.com, where I cover the daily news cycle in terms of politics, pop culture, and entertainment news of interest to the LGBTQ community. Thanks for listening, folks. See you next time.